Good morning, church. We're going to go into scripture reading this morning. Um, the passage for today is going to be John 12, verses 20 through 36. If you'd like to follow along, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 1638. If you don't have a Bible or if someone you know doesn't have a Bible and would appreciate having one, you can feel free to take the Bible in the pew. That is for you. Um, yeah. All right, John chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came up to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, but anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard that the law that, uh, we've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? And then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. The word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, so there is a, this regular occurrence at my house where, and I've heard this happens in some other people's houses too, that where uh, my wife will say, hey, can you go get this thing? Like our kid needs this thing. Can you go get this thing out of the fridge or out of the cabinet or whatever? And I will go and I will stand in front of the fridge and I will look for that thing. And I know what it looks like. And I know that it's in there. We almost all, you know, we always have ketchup, right? The ketchup is in there somewhere. I know where it is, it's on the door. And, and for the life of me, I cannot find it. And then I have to, and now I've been married for, for, almost, for almost nine years now. And so this has happened enough that I know it's probably in there and that I just can't see it. And so I will look, I will keep looking beyond what is reasonable. And then, and then I will have to work up the nerve 
to say to my wife, honey, I, I don't think we have any ketchup, right? Beca- and I know it's working up the nerve because I know what's going to happen. She's going to go, and she's going to walk over, and it's going to be right there, right, in fr- right where I was looking, right? And, uh, and this happens, and, and the, she, my wife finds this either mildly cute or, uh, or very annoying, depending on how many times our children woke us up the night before. And so, um, and, I, and I, am like, I have like gained a level of sympathy for her because as bad as I am at seeing what's right in front of my eyes, my kid, my three-year-old is worse. And so he, now he does this, right? And so this is like just, this is my wife's life. Like every, all of, this is her life for the next 18 years. It's just gonna be three boys in her house who can't find things that are right in front of their eyes, you know? Um, <laughs> so we're at a moment in the, in the Gospel of John where that's essentially the dynamic that's happening here. Like, the degree to which the crowds of people who are interested in Jesus but simply cannot see what is right in front of their eyes, what's so right there, is, is getting absurd. Jesus has done all these miracles. Most recently, he raised a guy from the dead. And, they're, and, um, and they're, these people are still just... They're not totally sure. They're like, I think, we think you're special. We think maybe you're the Messiah, but we're just not sure yet. And every time it seems like Jesus tells them something more, they go, I, I don't see it. I, I just can't see it, you know? Um, and so the pa- this passage begins with a group of non-Jewish Greeks asking to see Jesus. And that seems to trigger something for Jesus. He explains this thing. And the, and the crowd show again, they, they're still just, they can't see what's right in front of their eyes. And then it ends with Jesus hiding himself. He, le- he leaves that place and he hides himself. And so in some ways, the dialogue is pointing to what's going on. But there's also a parable being enacted in the middle of this, right? That, that, is, that bookends either side of this. There's people that want to see Jesus. But because... Because they can't see Jesus, Jesus ends up hiding himself. Um, Jesus says to them, believe in the light while you still have the light. And in many ways, this is what Jesus has called you and I to this morning. To not miss what is right in front of your eyes. To see him, to believe in him, and to follow the one to follow him. Um, and Jesus clarifies three key keys to following him in this passage. Three things that if we do we will see what is right in front of our eyes. And I think this is important. This is not just for people who are not Christians yet or who have not accepted Jesus yet. This is also true for, for those of us who have walked with Jesus a long time. Right? So the first key to following Jesus is to reorient your understanding of who Jesus is. It's to reconceptualize Jesus. Right? Jesus spends most of our passage talking about how he's going to die. That he's the one who wants, that, and the one who wants to follow him must also follow him to that death. And he reiterates it again. So we're going to start kind of towards the end of our passage. He reiterates it again in, in verse 32, right? He says in verse 32, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'm going to draw all people to myself. And he showed that, he said this to show what sort of death he was going to die, that he was going to be lifted up literally on a cross. And the crowd speaks up and they go, they go, we heard from the law of Moses uh, we've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say that the, the Son of Man's going to die? 
right? It, who's the Son of Man? Like, they're like, listen, we, here's what we know. We know that the, the Son of Man is going to live forever. But you're saying this, that you're going to die. So you can't possibly be the Son of Man. They just like, they don't, they see part of the truth, but they don't see the whole thing. And so Jesus basically rebukes them. He says, um, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. While you, while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you, walk in the light. Whoever walks in the dark doesn't know where they're going. Believe in the light while you still have it so that you may become children of the light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and he hid himself, right? Sort of acting as parable of like, this is what it's going to be like for you. Like, I'm right in front of you. See me while I'm right in front of you because then I'm going to go away. Right? And what we have to see here is that Jesus is refusing to be the Messiah that they've worked up in their minds. He's not, he, he refuses to pander to their imaginings or to sort to, 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 to fit the mold in which they have set up for who the Messiah is. Um, he defines what that means, right? And it, it's, this is critical because since Jesus came to the world, I mean, this is happening as Jesus is walking on the earth. This, this also happens today, mostly in churches and among Christians. Right? People, have, people will try to make Jesus and form Jesus into a mold. They, they understand what it means that he's the Messiah, and they understand part of it, but they don't understand the whole thing. Right? So C.S. Lewis, in, the, um, in his book, A Grief Observed, he makes, he makes this, essentially this exact same point. He says, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is a supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And most are offended by the iconoclasm. And blessed are those who are not. But the same thing happens in our private prayers. Right? So whether you're brand new to faith in Jesus or if you've been going to church your entire life, this picture that you have, like you have to realize that the picture that you have in your head of Jesus is not an accurate picture. It is in some ways, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, in some ways it is a caricature, right? It is a caricature which, which accentuates some features and minimizes others. And so while it resembles the truth, it is not, the, it is not a fully accurate picture, right? A caricature, a caricature looks like the thing it's the picture of, but not exactly, right? And this is why, like, okay, so this is why, for instance, well-meaning Christians who, are, who vote Democrat are sure, I mean, just, just absolutely sure that if Jesus was here today in America, he would vote Democrat, you know? And then they're talking to these, like, well-meaning Christian Christians who vote Republican, and, the, and they're like totally convinced that if Jesus was in America today, he would definitely vote Republican, you know? And like, right, because, because what's, what's happened here? It's not that either of them is seeing Jesus necessarily wrongly. It's that they're accentuating different parts of Jesus, right? To make him into the thing that they already are, right? To make him in their own image in some sense. And in, in some ways, like, this is, un, this is unavoidable in a lot of ways, right? Because, and it's, it's actually not even that bad, of, it's not even a bad thing necessarily, 
right? It's because Jesus reveals himself to people where they are and in ways that will get their attention and will draw them to him, right? And so when, Je- like for instance, when Jesus ble- meets blind Bartimaeus, he heals him. And so who is Jesus to blind Bartimaeus? He's a healer. He's a great healer, right? Um, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, he, he's the one who can tell her everything she's ever done and quench her thirst. When Jesus meets the educated religious elites, he's the one whose knowledge of scripture surpasses even theirs. When Jesus meets Zacchaeus, he's, he's the one who's willing to eat even with tax collectors, right? Like, when Jesus is on the boat with the disciples and the storms comes up, he's the one who has power over nature. And what their understanding of Jesus is, like, a very understandably shaped and formed and, and moved around those real events where they encounter Jesus. That's not a bad thing. Like, like, if Jesus heals you, you will know him as a healer. But if that's all you know him as, if that's all, if, if you never sort of get beyond that, you will end up with a character of Jesus. And we're all prone to this, and we're all prone to this, not just once, but over and over and over again as Jesus works in our life. Right? He is, Jesus is each one of those things. It's not that he's not. When uh, each one of those people, when they experienced Jesus do these things, they understood something about him, and they didn't all understand the same thing about him. Right? So if you want to follow Jesus, the first thing you have to do is over and over and over again, reconceptualize who Jesus is. You have to encounter the real Jesus, not just the Jesus that you've encountered. Right? So every time you read your Bibles— and you read a story about Jesus, or every time you experience Jesus' work in your life, you have to ask the question, even if, even if you've read that Bible story a hundred times, you have to ask yourself the question, how is the real Jesus different than the Jesus that I imagine? Right? How is the real Jesus different than the Jesus that I imagine? And we cannot get lazy about this, you guys. We just, we cannot get lazy about this. We cannot become prideful and think, oh, well, I, I understand the depths of the knowledge of Jesus because I've been doing this for 30 years. In this, in this passage, the crowd see Jesus as the eternal and victorious king, but that's all they see of him. And so they can't understand how Jesus could possibly suffer and die. Right? It, it totally counteracts their, what, what they know about the Messiah. And the problem is not that Jesus is being opaque, they ask the question immediately after he's quoted from Isaiah 52, which is, a, which is a Isaiah 52 and 53, which is a whole chapter in the Old Testament that they know so well in the prophets talking about how the Messiah is going to suffer and die. The pro- their problem is that they're stuck with a caricature, one where they've accentuated certain aspects of who Jesus is and minimized others. And so Jesus, Jesus says about himself here, he says several things about himself. We're going to focus in, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of list off. He goes through several of these. He's, he's the one who's going to drive Satan out, the prince of this world. He's the one who inaugurates judgment, both good and bad, on people. His presence, particularly in his death on the cross, creates a world in which you will be judged. Third, he is the one who will gather those who are his. 
He's the light. He's the thing by which you can see the truth and interpret the world. And then fifth, and this is where Jesus, I think, really kind of hones in on by, by quoting Isaiah. He's the suffering servant. And he's trying to get the, he's trying to get the crowds to see you, that he, is, he can be both the Messiah and can die. Right? Because Isaiah 52, 13 starts with the, starts with the line, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, right? What does lifted up and highly exalted mean in that? It's like that it means, like to be lifted up in that context means he's going to be raised up, glorified in some sense. But then it goes on just a few verses later, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. It goes on. This is actually pretty, you've probably read a lot of these verses before. In verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. That means he died, right? That's just a poetic way of saying he died. For the transgression of my people he was punished. But then in verse 11, circles back around, and it says, After he has suffered, you, he will see the light of life. That is a poetic way to say he will live. He will be alive and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquity. So you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying he's reworking their image of him to reconceptualize in light of the nuances of his actual character. And so if you, if you want to follow him, you have to continually do hard work of reconceptualizing Jesus, of, of asking the question, how is the real Jesus different than the Jesus that I imagine? What are the nuances that I don't yet understand about him? Even if I've read all these stories a hundred times. You have to see him as he really is in all his complexity and continue to dig down deeper and greater understanding and knowledge of him. Right? One of my, I had a seminary professor who once, we were talking about sort of like the mysteries of the faith and how do you, and one of the things he said was that um, you, can, you can dig a hole and you can still get deeper in the hole without ever hitting the bottom, right? In some sense, you could dig a hole and you could just, if you had the right equipment and the tools, you could just keep digging, you know? You could dig forever. You never get to the bottom of the hole. But it, but it doesn't mean you don't get deeper. And one of, the, one of our greatest temptations is we hit a depth and we go, I think that's deep enough. I think I'm good right here. I don't think I, like, I think I'm at the bottom of the hole. And you're not at the bottom of the hole. Right? There, is no, there is no such thing in some ways as the bottom of the hole. The bottom of the hole is wherever you are right now in, in some sense, but it also could be much deeper if you just had the equipment to get down a little further. And that's how, that's how our, what our relationship and how we conceptualize Jesus must be. Right? We have to just continually dig. And even when we think we've gotten deep enough, we have to realize we're not at the bottom of that hole. Um, this will have two effects on us. The first... Is, is kind of the obvious one. It will create a more accurate picture of who Jesus is in our mind, right? So that, so that while our image of Jesus may still be a character in some sense, it will be less of a caricature. It will be more accurate. It will, it, it will, it will go from that character and it'll be like forming into a real, like a photo of a person. Um, the second though, is that it will lead you to worship him as you discover more and more of him. 
Like, the more you discover him, the more you understand the nuances and the complexities, the more you, will re- the more you come to realize how amazing he is and how, how different he is from everyone else and how and every, anything else claims to be a savior. And you, and you will fall more in love with him and be more excited about following him, right? It has, it has both effects. And both of these are important because what Jesus is then going to ask you to do is really, really hard if you, don't see, if you can't see any of the complexities of him, of who he is. If you're not constantly reconceptualizing him. Because the second key to following Jesus, the thing he says, is you have to sacrifice your life. He spends a good bit of time on that in this passage. He makes it this clear in verses 23 to 26, right? He says, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So far in the book of John, as we've worked through the book of John, uh, every time Jesus has talked about his hour, or the, the, the hour, it has been in the future, right? In, in John chapter 2, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. He says that several times throughout the book. This is the first moment where he says the hour's come. The hour's arrived. Something's changed. And what, ch- what triggers that change seems to be Greek Gentiles, non-Jewish people, at wanting, asking to see Jesus, and, it, and this seems to be important because um, nowhere then in this passage do we find out, did they, did they get to see Jesus? Like, Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew goes to Jesus, and uh, they're like, Jesus, these, these Greek Gentiles want to see you. And then, and then Jesus goes off on this thing, and you, you never, like, really find out, did Jesus, did they, were they there? Were they, did they see Jesus or not? For John, what's much more important is that this is the moment, this is the thing that has triggered the hour of Jesus arriving. And so from here on out in the Gospel of John, Jesus is marching towards his death. We, there's this real shift. Jesus says that the, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in John, when Jesus talks about himself being glorified, he's referring to his death and his resurrection. All is sort of like one moment, one event. Um, And there's actually a particular emphasis on his death. See, what we're tempted to do is when we think about Jesus being glorified, we're tempted to say, well, yeah, yeah, Jesus is glorified. He dies so that he can really be glorified. Like the death has to be part of the resurrection because he can't get the resurrection without the death. But like really the, the glorification is the resurrection. That's not the way that Jesus talks about it in John here. With the way that Jesus talks about it in John, it isn't that he has to die so he can be raised from the dead to be glorified. There's actually something about the death, about his death, that is the thing that brings Jesus glory. The act of dying is itself the moment of Jesus' greatest glory. Jesus describes himself like a seed that has to die. And if the seed doesn't die, nothing happens. It's the death of the seed that makes it exponentially productive. And in the same way, Jesus' impending death is the thing that will produce life for others and will flourish into new life for him in some way. And Jesus says, this is actually, he, he transitions almost seamlessly and says, this is actually true for anyone who wants to follow me too. 
Anyone who wants to serve me. He says, if you want to serve me, you have to follow me. Um, right? He says, where I am, my servant will be also. Right? He's, he's like, listen, if, you, if you're a servant of somebody, you can't serve them if you're not in the room with them. Right? Like, that's the, like that, it just doesn't make any sense. And so you have to follow me around. And the first place I'm going to go is I'm going to die. I'm going to sacrifice my life. And if you're not willing to come, then you can't serve me, right? Um, I've, been, I've been reading this uh, documentary, or not documentary, whatever, biography of um, Alexander the Great, greatest general who's ever lived, um, would, most people would say. And there's m- multiple moments. He, he, he goes from Macedonia and Greece, and he makes it all the way to India and back and marches through just, I mean, he like intentionally takes some of the worst possible routes. Um, because no one else has ever done it before, and he's super conceited. And so, um, and he, but he has this whole army that, go, that like is going along with him. And they got families at home and kids, and they wanted to come and like, get rich and then go back to Macedonia and be rich. And they didn't, they didn't know they were going to India, you know? And so there are, there's like three or four points along Alexander's journey where, where the army's just like, this is terrible. Like, we're dying in the snow here, or we're dying in the desert here, or we're dying in the jungle here, or whatever, right? And like, and they're just like, we, this is not what we signed up for. We want to go home. And Alexander, and it, every one of those moments goes, and until the last one, he, it works. Um, and every one of those moments goes, that's fine. Go home, tell your families you abandoned your general, I'm going forward. And, and, every, and that works every time. He gets to India, and finally the soldiers are like, no, okay, fine, we're going home. <laughs> uh, but, but there was a sense in which Alexander's saying essentially the same thing. Like, listen, if you want to serve me, great. But you can't go home and serve me. You, you, if you want to serve me, you, have to be with, you actually have to be with me. You've got to be in the army with me. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. Listen, if you, if you want to serve me, you've got to follow me, even when it looks like you're going to die. Even when you are going to die. And so you cannot follow Jesus if you're not willing to die because to follow him is to follow him into that death, right? He did die. Jesus says you have to hate your life in this world. He does, so people misread that. Sometimes people read that and they go, oh, you gotta be like super emo to follow Jesus or something or just like really grumpy, you know? Um, Jesus uses the word hate though not in an absolute sense. He's using it in a comparative sense. It's the same thing like when Jesus says you've got to, in another passage, he says you've got to hate your father and your mother and your wife and your kids and like your whole family if you want to follow me. And um, right, he doesn't mean you have to just like literally like despise your wife and just hate her and never do anything loving for her and just wish you weren't married to her, right? That would be sort of weird if he meant that because he seems to say very different things other places, right? What he means is that by comparison, you have to love Jesus so much that you would make choices that would look like you hated your parents. Because when it comes to following them or following him, you follow him every time. Right? It's this comparative sense. And so um, in the same way, the way you act, the decisions you make, they have to look like out- to outsiders. To people who don't know Jesus, they have to look like you hate your life. Because when Jesus calls you to come and die, you recklessly, seemingly, throw away your life. Now, sometimes that means literally, right? Um, sometimes that means, like some of you may be called, and we've, we've, 
lots of us have probably read stories of like missionaries who've gone to countries. There are missionaries right now in places in the world, in the Middle East and in North Africa and in Asia that, that literally are going to die for the, for the sake of bringing the gospel to those people because Jesus has commanded to do them. They decided they're going to follow Jesus and they're going to go. And some of you, Jesus might be commanding you to do that. And you should listen to that and be willing to die and throw away your life for his command. Um, it, it may be a literal throwing away of your life in another way, right? Like, so uh, early in the first couple hundred years of the church, of church history, after Jesus' death and resurrection, there were a number of plagues that went through Rome and Roman lands. And everyone who had any ability to and money to uh, got out of town, right? They all left. They went to like their villas in the hills because where they, because they didn't necessarily understand germ theory, but they knew enough that like, if I'm around these people who are sick, I'm going to get sick and I'm going to die too. And so if you could, you left. And, um, but the Christians didn't. The Christians, even though they could, a lot of the Christians had enough wealth or whatever that they could have left. They ended up staying in dis, far disproportionate numbers to the rest of the population. And one of the things that happened is that a lot of those people that they cared for got better because they got care. Even if it was not modern medical care, they got some kind of care. And so they lived and then they became Christians and Christianity exploded. But the other thing that happened is a lot of those people died, right? A lot of those Christians who stayed behind and cared for the sick caught those germs and then they died, right? And so there is a way in which like we as Christians, even today can throw away our lives without going on the mission field. Like literally, right? I mean, like we just had a global pandemic. We, there could be another one coming at any point, which is just so fun to think about, you know? But how, but, how will we, but how will we respond, right? Are we willing to be the sorts of people who stay and are willing to recklessly, seemingly, recklessly throw away our lives for the sake of other people? Um, so that's the way, like, it can literally mean you have to sacrifice your life. It can also figuratively mean you have to sacrifice your life, which is probably what it will end up being meaning for most of us in America in 2024, right? So it's, it's doing things like giving your money away to help other people and glorify God so that you don't get to go on the vacation you really want to go on or buy the boat you really want. I went to the Madison Fishing Show this weekend, and there are a lot of boats I really want. Um, and shouldn't buy, right? Because Jesus wants me to do other things with my money. Um, or eat out as much as you want. You, you have to sort of give up those pleasures for the sake of doing the things that Jesus asks you to do. And for a lot of people in our society, a society that really cares a lot about pleasure and comfort, that's going to look like you hate your life. You know? Or spending your time and emotional energy on other people, inviting them into your house, showing them hospitality, right? And not just the people you really love, but like the, we, we had a term in California, I don't, maybe some of you guys have heard this term, the EGR people, which is, stands for extra grace required people, you know? Like, <laughs> there's just, there's some people, it's like really nice to have them in your house, right? And they bring you a nice bottle of wine when they come over. And then there's like, then there's the other people, it's just like, they leave and you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. Uh, <laughs> but, I think they felt loved. I think they got something that they weren't going to get anywhere else, right? That feels like a death, particularly when you got a lot else going on in your life, when you're already sort of tired from work. Um, 
Having children and parenting children is hard work. I was just talking to my wife this week about this. Like, she, we have three little kids, and <laughs> she was talking about how, like, it feels like she's given up her whole life for these kids. Like, she put her career on hold. She's, like, she just, like, spends all day basically moderating and refereeing stuff. And, um, and these little monsters, you know? And, and they're wonderful little monsters, right? They're, it's a privilege and the joy of the Lord, whatever. But also, they're little monsters, you know? And, and that's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. But to, but to give your life for the sake of someone else, your children, is honoring to God. It is, in some ways, it is throwing away your life. Sure. It will, you, will, you will have less money and you will have less comfort and you will have more sleepless nights and all of, the, all of that is true. And yet, Jesus, Jesus commands us to be willing to sacrifice our life for his sake, right? You, I could do this like a hundred different ways, right? Holding to Jesus' sexual ethic, being celibate until you're married to someone and then once you're married to someone, only giving yourself to that person. Right? I mean, like the world will tell you that that is essentially killing yourself. Right? You are doing something terrible to yourself if you do that. But those who want to follow Jesus live in such a way that gives up their life, sacrifices their, their life or what they think is their life. Right? Or working hard at work because you want to be productive and help other people, whether you're fixing their cars or coding their medical uh, software. Right? You, you could just get by. You could take as much from the company as you can. Use, use that for your good. Or you could like really give your time and your energy to do these things that are productive and help other people, right? You, we, could, we could do like a hundred of these. The point is this, that, to, that one of the first things Jesus will call you to do, and one of the things he will call you to do over and over and over and over again, if you're going to follow him and you're going to be with him, is to sacrifice your life. It's going to be to give up the things you could have in life. And the good news is that Jesus promises that anyone who hates this life, hates their life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. Um, and anyone who, and, and those who try to hold on to their lives, who live in comfort, their own comfort or pleasure or power or security, who do everything they can to save their own life and make it great, will end up losing their life. And we, we like know this anecdote, I mean, anecdotally, right? We, our anecdotal evidence proves that this to be true, right? We all know people who seemingly have everything that we ever could want, and they're miserable, right? I think one of the, um, the fallacies here, though, is like when Jesus says you have to hate your life in this life, he doesn't mean you have to, you're like, we're just all going to be miserable until we die, but then we get eternal life, and it'll be great, you know? Like, that's not really what he's saying. He's saying you have to, like, be willing to give up your life. You have to live in such a way that you're willing to give up your life. And actually, in that, you'll find life in this life. You'll actually, you'll actually have more life. You'll live a real life, a life worth living now and into eternity. Right? It, it's both. But you can't, you can't possibly live that life if you're not willing to just throw it all away. Like, if you, if you aren't just totally reckless with it. Um, all right, so in order to follow Jesus, you must first reconceptualize who Jesus is constantly. Second, you've got to sacrifice your life. Third, though, you've got to become consumed with the glory of God. <sighs> 
this is, Jesus says this in verse, starting in verse 27. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came into this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said that, he, uh, that it had thundered. And others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not for mine. Right? It was a confirming voice for them that this was, that Jesus was speaking the words of God. Um, the first line of that, of those verses is, my soul is troubled. Um, I, I don't think we should read past that, right? Jesus is not a masochist. Right? He isn't calling you to masochism. Right? The fact that he's going to die troubles his soul in some very real human way. And this is in the Gospel of John where like, John is like, the, the Jesus John describes, Jesus, John really focuses on his divinity, like how he is from God. And here he, go, he records that Jesus said, my soul is troubled that I'm headed towards death. He's not looking forward to it. He doesn't want to do that. In Luke's gospel, Jesus prays right before he's arrested, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Right? And it's kind of the same thing here. It isn't that Jesus wants to die. It's that he's so consumed with the desire for God's name to be glorified. And he knows that by coming to this hour where he was... um, where he is going to become like a seed that dies. It is only by doing that 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 can truly happen. And that, in fact, that was the whole point of his life in the, whole, the, whole, in the first place. And so, and often you and I focus on the negative aspect of denying ourselves. In some ways that can be really good and helpful. But we can't forget the reason we're denying ourselves. It's not because we hate ourselves. It's not because we want to be miserable. It's not because uh, if we just like, suffer enough, God will love us. It is because we love God so much more, right? We, we want to see God get more glory, and that's why we give up our vacations and, our ki- and have kids and sleep with fewer people than we could and all the, all the rest of it, right? Because it brings glory to God, and, that, and we realize that's what our whole life is for. Like, that was the, that's the whole point of living, right? And so you don't give to the poor because it's a good thing you do. You give to the poor because that person is made in the image of God, and that when you provide for them out of what God has given to you and the surplus he has given to you when— that you remind them of the dignity they have as an image bearer of God, you enact God's generosity towards them, and you act out the reality of everything that you you have belongs to God. And that causes you and others to praise him more, which brings him more glory. This is why Jesus says, when when you give money to the poor, don't tell anyone about it. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Right? That's why we don't draw attention to ourselves when we give away money, because that would end up focusing the attention on us. We would get some of that glory for giving that money, doing those, those good deeds. And then what that means is that like, this is a zero-sum game, and if we get that glory, then God doesn't get that glory, and that was the whole point in the first place. Right? So like, we're, we'd be shooting ourselves in the foot. And this is, this is really critical to understand, because you'll never be able to sacrifice your life as long as you're not consumed with the glory of God. It just... Listen, it just won't be worth it. It's a terrible way to live if you're not consumed with the glory of God. Right? Often you and I think about following Jesus into his death, and we do it for the wrong reasons. We do it because we assume there's going to be a reward for that. Certainly eternal life, but 
we also assume happiness and provisions and thing, provision and things like that. And there are places where, where Jesus promises all of those things, right? God provides for his people. One of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. Whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life, Jesus promises, right? Like all of that is true. But if that is our primary motivation for following Jesus into death, we are by definition not really following Jesus into death. We're just like more, we aren't really sacrificing our lives. We're thinking in terms of, we're still thinking in terms of how can I save my life? How can I get the most out of this? It's just like a more sophisticated, nuanced, and religious way to think about that. But it's really the same thing. And so the solution is not actually to try, just try a lot harder to deny yourself and be miserable. The solution is, like Jesus, to become consumed with the glory of God, to be so laser-focused that everything about your life brings God glory, that you don't hardly even think about the effect on your life. You're not focused on all the negative things, all the things you don't get to do, or all the things that like, could be better in your life for the boat. You, don't, you just don't think about that boat, you know? Which I'm working on. Right? So that you, like Jesus, can say, my soul is troubled. My soul is, actually, is troubled by this. But in the next breath, realize it's, it's un- totally unthinkable to ask God to take this suffering. Because whatever that may be, away from you, because it brings God glory. And the whole, that's the whole point of your life. That's the, and you want that way more, right? If, uh, if you're trying to lose weight, one of the least effective things you can do is focus on things like eating less. Now listen, if you want to lose weight, you have to eat less, right? That's just, that's just a fact of life. But if you're only focused on eating less, when the cheese curds show up, right, you will not be able to say no. And even if you say no the first time, right, then the next time you go out to eat and there are more cheese curds, you'll, like eventually you'll end up giving in. Because de- denying yourself those cheese curds sucks, right? It's no fun. That's like, it's miserable. <laughs> and even if you do, can do it for a little while, you almost all, always fall back into doing what you want. And so instead, you have to want something else more. This is what people who are like trying to help you lose weight, they'll tell you this. You you have to have a bigger goal in mind. You have to have something that you both intellectually and emotionally want more than cheese curds. And you have to be laser focused on that thing. And so, and they'll tell you, you gotta like, you gotta like write it down somewhere and like read it every day. Right? Because if you're like, if you have a desire, you like love cheese curds, but you also have a desire to be able to run around with your kids without being winded, right? All of a sudden, the cheese curds don't look quite as good, at least by comparison, right? Because you have something you want more than that. And so you have to replace your desire for the one thing with a stronger desire, one that, one that is intellectually stronger, but is also emotionally stronger, one that, one that gets at the core of who you are, You have to replace your desire for self-gratification with a desire for God's glory. And um, and so how how do you build that in you? How do you become the sort of person who wants God's glory more? Um, In many ways, it's like the same answer as always, right? So like, ask the Holy Spirit to grow that desire in you. So, you know, you should pray. Do you guys know what's coming next? You should read your Bible, right? Like, 
You should, but you should ask every day this week and, and just see what happens. Ask that, that God would make you more consumed with, his, with a desire for his glory in your life. And then read stories in the Bible of Christ, or stories of Christians in history who did amazing things because they desired God's glory over everything else and they threw away their lives in seemingly reckless ways that their contemporaries could not understand and see how God used them and how much glory he brought to himself and how their lives have lived on through that through, because of what God has done. Get together with other Christians who desire God's, more glory, or God's glory more than you and try to become more like them. I mean, that's what, right? It's like, that's what small groups are about. That's what mentoring is about. That's what, right? So in many ways, it's all, it's all the same things, but it's for the, all the right reasons, right? Start living in the way that Jesus called you to. And you're, you'll find that just by doing the things, you will end up growing in that desire, that the, the desire for God's glory will begin to snowball in you as you see him work in your life. Um, okay, when I was in college, there was a, um, there was a river about 30 minutes away from, from my university, and there was um, a stretch of river where it slowed down and it would pool up, and, um, and there was somebody, and it was a steep bank, and so someone had put in a rope swing. And it was like a pretty, it was a pretty high rope swing. Um, but the problem was that the level of the river fluctuated quite a bit. This was in California, we have droughts and uh, pretty regularly. And so you could never quite be sure, especially depending on, like, because you go in the summer and like you get all your rain by March and then it just stops raining in California. And, and then you don't get any rain again until October. And so like the whole summer, the, the river just goes down and down and down and down and down and down. And it's kind of muddy, you can't really see the bottom. And you don't really know how deep it is, right? And we were in college. And so we were college kids. And so like no one was gonna wade in and like, you know, dive down and see how deep it was or something like that, right? And so what we would do is we would just find out after the first person swung in <laughs> how, how deep it was and if it was safe to jump, you know, safe to do it. Um, and so to do this was like, <laughs> to be the, the, the difference between the, being the first person to go and the second person to go was very different, right? And to be the first person to go was a real risk. To, to be the second person to go like, in some ways, felt like a risk, but it was, but you knew, like, somebody had just gone. You knew the water was deep enough. You were going to be fine. Um, and so usually what we did, we just let, what, let whatever guy was trying to impress whatever girl that day go first, right, and show how brave he was, right? So it was great. And, like, we were college students, so, like, there was, that was always a dynamic that was happening when we went to the road swing. So, um, so it was never a problem. But to follow Jesus is the one who was lifted up on a cross is, many, is in many ways a scary endeavor and feels terrifying. It feels very risky, but it really isn't because he went first, right? He is not only the one who was lifted up on the cross and not only one who, was, who told us that we should sacrifice our lives, but he is the one who sacrificed his life first, who was lifted up on the cross and then who was simultaneously and afterwards lifted up and glorified by God. So Jesus isn't just commanding you to do something reckless. He's asking you to follow him. That's different. And it's a whole lot easier to do when you know that the water is deep enough because you already saw someone else jump in. And so if you are just making the decision, so if you're just making the decision of whether or not to follow Jesus, reconceptualize Jesus, sacrifice your life, become consumed with the glory of God, and, and 
and jump in after him, follow him where he, you cannot serve him. You cannot, if you will not follow him and be where he is. That's true for you, for those of you who've been following Jesus for years. You've got to continually reconceptualize, see who he is, sacrifice your life for him, become consumed with the glory of God, and follow the one who is lifted up. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we want to follow Jesus. We, we want to follow him. God, we're, um, we're cowards and we're scared even though we've, we know that he did it first. Um, we pray that you would help us, that you would, um, that your Holy Spirit would work in us so that we could reconceptualize who Jesus is that you would make our, our picture of Jesus that we have in our mind, that you would make it to be more accurate, that it would, that every day and every week that passes, our vision of who Jesus is would be more true to the real man. Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to, to sacrifice our lives and the, um, give us the courage, but also just the wisdom to know in which ways you're calling us to sacrifice our lives. Help us to see what that means um, so that on the hard days of parenting or on the hard days of singleness or on the hard days of, uh, of, of paying bills, Lord, that um, we would be reminded of why we're doing what we're doing. And Lord, we, we do pray that you would just absolutely consume us, enchant us with your glory. Help us to see how glorious you are and help us to desire more fully to, to spend our whole lives giving you glory. Help us to be able to pray like Jesus, my soul is troubled, and yet it is for this very reason I came to this hour. Help us to, help us to really live like that practically. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.